Thank you, Bailey. I really appreciate it. Um, if you would, stay there with me in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. We're going to have a Bible study here this morning. Uh, but I want to start off just actually by uh, being honest with you guys this morning. Um, that's pretty good place to start. I'm normally, I try to be honest as much as I can, uh, and, and I'm going to start in a place that may seem initially to be a little depressing, uh, but I hope that it ends in a lot of glory as we look at some really amazing things from God's Word this morning. Uh, but that is that I'm honestly pretty concerned. Now, that's probably not like a news flash for anybody. I feel like the level of concern uh, in our society right now is like an, an all-time high. I don't know if they've ever like tracked concern, but uh, we're all pretty concerned right now. But I'm not, I'm not talking about uh, the concern that would come into my heart by uh, way of considering what's happening with the pandemic or uh, with, uh, you know, with the economy or with whatever uh, version of dumpster fire you think that our politics is right now. Uh, that's not the thing that is most concerning to me. Honestly, right now, I am concerned for the state of the church. I'm concerned, uh, to be honest with you, a little bit with the state uh, of our church in as much as it is very much a part of that church universal. And, and there are a few reasons why I am concerned, but I, I, I want to be specific about this. I'm not eternally concerned. I'm temporarily concerned. Uh, what do I mean by that? I, I know, we know, we've looked at Revelation, we've seen how all of this ends. I'm not concerned for the eternal state of the church. Uh, we, we know uh, that uh, Jesus himself said that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about temporarily in our time, in our place. It's almost as though the battle that we are in, our generation's battle, amidst this uh, long era's long age-old spiritual war, between God and the forces of darkness that wish to uh, take over this world, it's as though our small peace, our battle, is really beset on all sides. Let me, let me maybe be a little bit more specific about where my concerns are coming from. It, it seems like in our time, uh, there's a persistent instinct in our culture to pour acid atop every institution that, uh, that has really actually even gotten us to where we are in our place in history, our place in civilization. There's an instinct in our culture to just see these things disintegrate. You may have heard a, a word that I didn't hear all that much before uh, 2019 and 2020. I, I hear about a lot of people uh, seeing as though there is a deconstruction going on, a deconstruction. But I, I think that actually the better word is not deconstruct as if we're picking things apart in order to put them back together, but, but maybe even destroy. Destroy might be the word of what's happening, and that concerns me. There's not just uh, this uh, concern that I have in our culture, but there's a, uh, a pandemic. Now, it's not necessarily the, the virus that I'm concerned about, um, although that's something that we should be concerned about. It, it's what the virus is kind of doing in the midst of our culture. It's almost as though the pandemic is severing the connections that we have uh, severing the relational connections that we have, the traditions that we have, the rituals that we have, the habits that we have that actually go a long way to form who we are, not just as individuals, but as people. Um, I, I am very concerned by that. There's an intensely individual, individualistic pathos that I think has kind of needed its way into our society that demands, maybe even mandates, a self-centeredness. And nowhere is that more uh, kind of uh, concerning to me than this, uh, uh, this experiment that we are running as a society right now that is wired into every blinking screen that we see, every social media app that we have. It's almost as though there's this experiment that's never been done before in human culture. The, the, the closest thing that we had was like the printing press. And it's not obvious to me how we come out of this, not just as a culture, but specifically as the church. It's not obvious to me what the state of the church will look like next year, much less one generation from now for my children, for your children, for our grandchildren. It's not obvious to me what that looks like. 
I feel like maybe there's a, a similar sense of concern uh, in the conversations that I have with a lot of you, and so I, I think it's probably something that's very concerning to a lot of us. But I, I'm really saying that it concerns me about the state of the church, about the state of our church. And though I am concerned, I do want to add this piece in here. Don't hear me being completely pessimistic. Although I am concerned, I cannot overstate my personal excitement and my personal hope for the next chapter of City Church's life as a church. I'm excited about it. I'm excited about the thing that is to come next in this next chapter for us as a church. Why? Honestly, it's because of what we're going to study this morning. It's because God's true word tells us and shows us what a spirit-filled platoon amidst this cultural war that's going on, what that platoon looks like. So if we're in this battle of our time that's very concerning, that seems beset on all, side, uh, on all sides, we get a picture today in this passage about what a little platoon of Christians can look like when they are spirit-filled and when they are doing the things that come out of our spirit-filledness. It tells us what it looks like. So you may have questions in your heart about City Church. You, you may be asking yourself, uh, how will we navigate the cultural sea change that seems to be happening right now. We've set out a vision of uh, seeking a revival of joyful worship. How will we pursue that revival of joyful worship in the near and long term? I've had many conversations over the last few weeks uh, with people in our church because we're, we're going through some of these changes. We're trying to figure some of these things out. And the question that I've gotten over and over again is, what will City Church look like going forward? If that's a question that you, that your uh, friends, that your discipleship group has been asking, I'm not saying that I'm going to answer all of those questions this morning. I'm not. But what I am going to do, what we are going to do, is see how God's Word shows us what a revival of joyful worship that advances God's kingdom into every generation looks like. So this passage here in Acts 2, verses 42 through 47, it shows us what a revival of joyful worship looks like in a group of people just like us, and that excites my heart. So what I'm going to do this morning, I know that we've already read this passage, but what I want to do is do a Bible study with you. So I actually want you to have a copy of Scripture, whether digital or otherwise, out, and I'm going to read through this again since it's a short passage, and I, I want you to do the work this morning. I'm going to ask you, if you had to pick a word, not the one right word, but just the word that stands out to you in the midst of reading this passage that really um, leads to a group of people, a platoon, looking like what God has called us into. Verse 42, read with me. Look for the one word that stands out to you and defines this passage. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That, that's, that's the word of the Lord for us this morning. That's what's going to guide us into this next chapter as a people here at City Church. And so I'm wondering, what are, what are, what, what's the word that stood out to you? It's not, I'm not after one word. What is the word in here that stood out to you that characterizes this little platoon of God's people in this greater battle that's a part of this ageless war? What is it that stood out to you? For me, the word is devotion. 
The word is devotion. Why? Because this passage tells us that God's Spirit-filled people are marked by spiritual devotion. That's where we're headed this morning. God's Spirit-filled people are marked in the way that they live. They live their lives of spiritual devotion. What does that mean? What, what is it that led to this? Well, there's some context here that's come from the previous uh, couple of uh, chapters. We started Acts chapter 1, and what we saw was the resurrected Jesus uh, burst forth from the grave, makes himself known, asserts himself back into this story. The disciples thought he was dead, and he's not. He's alive. And he promises them, he goes teaching them, showing them uh, about himself, but he teaches them that there's one coming who's going to change everything, and that's the Spirit. And so the last couple of weeks, we've spent uh, studying the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God falls like tongues of fire on God's people, and everything changes. So God promises the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit falls, and then everything changes. This ragtag group of people who uh, learned from Jesus, but then were pretty, uh, uh, pretty easily misunderstanding Jesus, then abandoned Jesus, one even denying Jesus, this ragtag group of people that write their own stories as though they are buffoons, suddenly are indwelled by the Spirit and they get the teachings of Christ. Everything changes. The disciples then start miraculously declaring the gospel in other languages. The people uh, that didn't speak the same language, they understood, they heard them in their own language. And then Peter gets up and delivers a sermon that results in 3,000 people coming into God's kingdom. 3,000. And his message wasn't something that was like, earth-shattering, groundbreaking, something that like nobody had not heard like Jesus say before. He simply declared the things that Jesus declared. He said, repent and be baptized. Save yourself from this wicked generation. And then 3,000 people were baptized. They came into God's people. Today, what we see is this, three th- this group of 3,000 coming into a beautiful, spirit-filled people. And we get a picture today of what that community looks like. So the first thing that I want to do is uh, ask the question how we're to understand what we see here. Because a lot of us are very familiar with these passages. We've read them time and time again. We've heard uh, many messages on this set of passages. But how do we understand them? There's, there's kind of, it, it's not so nerdy. It's a pretty relevant debate that goes on when you look at these verses. And that is, are we seeing something described or are we seeing something prescribed? Let me, let me make that a little bit more clear. Are we just seeing... Um, described what the Spirit is doing in this one group of people at this one time, or are we seeing something that is prescribed for all believers in all of time? Does that make sense? It's a difference of description versus prescription, and people get really hung up in theological debates about whether or not this is just uh, God's Spirit moving at one place and one time and one people, and it's not all that relevant to what we're doing. Uh, Some of those people would say, hey, there were things going on at this time that we don't see today. And it's not, not by our action or inaction. It's like we're seeing people in this set of verses that are like literally speaking in other languages that they did not know. So it was just describing something. There's, there's something to look back on, but not necessarily something for me. Whereas other people look at this set of passages and say, if I don't see this kind of stuff happening today in my church, something's broken, something's wrong. Because what God did was actually prescribe what God's community actually looked like. So how are we to understand these verses? Is it a a, a set of verses describing something or prescribing something? And and just so that we can do the interpretive work this morning, I want to tell you how I do. I see it as both. That's not a a cop-out. I see it as both. I see the Spirit doing really miraculous, amazing things in this group of people at this time, but then I also see this set of passage setting a few expectations for us as believers. So how do we actually 
put that on the ground? How do we make it work? And what I think that we do is we understand that there are principles for the Christian life that are buried in this text. How is it that this passage reveals to us the principles of life in a spirit-filled community? It says that they devoted themselves. How is it that we go about living the principles out? We devote ourselves. They devoted themselves. We devote ourselves. And and what I want to do real quick is actually go through each one of the things that's named in this list, okay? We're not going to spend a lot of time, but sometimes uh, sermons don't break down real easily into three distinct points because there's a list of stuff going on. What I want to do is pull out a painter's palette, and I want to take some time putting the colors on that palette so that we can understand what's going on here. And I want to do it fairly quickly so that we can get ultimately where we're going this morning. What was it that they devoted themselves to? First, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. What was it that they were devoting themselves to in the apostles' teachings? Well, these apostles, these disciples who had spent time with not just the uh, pre-crucified Jesus, but also the resurrected Jesus, had heard Jesus' teachings. So this isn't the apostles' teachings, this is Jesus' teachings through the apostles. Let us remember that the uh, New Testament was not written or canonized yet, so we we get to see that these people were devoting themselves to these uh, teachings of Jesus that came through the disciples, the apostles. So I want to just take a second and realize what's happening. 3,000 people here repent and believe the gospel. They come into the faith, and they devoted themselves. They had to, they had to see that something uh, demanded that they change their lives, and so what were they doing? They were listening to Jesus's teachings through the apostles. Second, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. What does that mean, that they devoted themselves to the fellowship? There are a lot of really good answers here. I honestly think that when it's talking about fellowship, it was, it was talking about the group of people, They devoted themselves to the group of people. What would it look like to devote yourself to a group of people? They were in discipleship, and they were discipling one another. They were living out these commandments of the one anothering that they heard through the disciples, through the apostles' teaching, and they started to enact those things in a devoted way. They were devoted to the fellowship. Third, it says that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, the breaking of bread is mentioned twice here in this passage. And so, it's, it's, uh, is it like doubling up? Is it reiterating itself? I don't think so, because what it starts off talking about is receiving the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, and next is going to be the prayers. It's talking about it in the context of gathering. What is the breaking of bread that happens in the gathering? It's what Jesus has commanded us to do. It's communion. They're breaking the bread of communion. They're doing that, and they're devoting themselves to it. Fourth, like I mentioned, is the prayers. They were devoting themselves to prayer. They were reciting written prayers. They were praying together and for one another. They were devoting themselves to prayer. Now, I, I don't want to say the word devotion so many times that you, like, it just kind of glosses over. They were devoting themselves they, they were actually putting themselves into, investing in, insisting in, and persisting in prayer. That's what this group of people was doing. That's what the disciples were leading them in. Fifth, they were together and they had all things in common. What does that mean that you would have all things in common? That is a deep well. In fact, Sarah Wargo sent me a text a few weeks ago and just said, hey, how do you take this verse? It's a really deep one. But if I could distill it down into a word, what I would say is, is that they were practicing Christian unity. They were practicing Christian unity. Now, now unity is a really, really beautiful word, but I want to recognize something here right now. There were 3,000 people. That was a lot of people. That included not just people that had differences of personality, it was including people of different races, different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, different genders. And in our world right now, there's a huge celebration, rightfully so, of multiculturalism and diversity. That is a thing that we really value in our place, in our time. But pay, pay attention to what's happening here. That multicultural, multigenerational, multi-socioeconomic group of people was being unified. 
Let, let, let us in this time, in this place, celebrate diversity, but also know and understand that in God's people, there is a unity that is also happening. We need to be valuing not just the differences in one another, but also being conformed into the image of Christ, being unified into the image of Christ, being one bride. Many parts, but one bride. They were being unified. They were practicing Christian unity. They were also doing something else that's very peculiar that, our, uh, uh, that, that honestly, our culture has a lot to say about. It gets kind of mixed up into a lot of different cultural conversations. They were taking their possessions, the things that they owned, and what they, were they doing? They were selling them and using the proceeds and distributing them among all. Now, here's one of the things that we hear a lot about in our time in our place. There are two different reactions to this. There are the people that don't want to do that. There are Christians who go, no, 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 it's my stuff. That was uh, something that was happening back then, and that spirit-filled people, that was what the spirit was doing then with them, but not me. No, you, you can't walk away from this. You, you, can't, you can't take this away from a Christian principle that I think applies itself to our lives. But also, there's another thing that happens You've probably heard it before. You've heard well-intentioned people rip this verse out of context and see, say, see, this is the underpinnings of communism, of socialism. They're, they're trying to take a biblical principle and like uh, weave it back into some like secular ideology that I guarantee you Jesus would have nothing to do with. He didn't come as some political uh, leader, some thought leader in the political space. He came as king. I had a good, uh, a good girlfriend that went to a local uh, school here that uh, I remember distinctly my senior year, uh, she, she came and said, well, you know, one of, my, one of my teachers said that if Jesus came back today, that he would be a communist. I said, well, what did you say? She goes, no, I, I told him that if he came back today, he'd be a monarch. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I think he would be a monarch. He wouldn't be a communist. He wouldn't be a socialist. He wouldn't be a capitalist. He'd be a monarch. He'd be a good king to his people. What we see here, though, is a willingness to have Christian generosity actually flowing out of his people. Christian sharing, Christian generosity, being willing to even sell things that were very dear and then share the proceeds of that. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that we are to go and sell everything that we have? Uh, maybe, maybe for you. Uh, I think that God does demand all of us, that there's no thing that you have that should be like outside, off limits for God. But, but I will say this, here in just the next couple verses, they were gathering in homes. So some people were selling things and distributing. Everybody was kind of doing that, but it, didn't, it wasn't like an end to property rights. And people that kind of try to, you know, twist that up and mash it in and conform it to something in today's day and age, they're getting away from the Christian principle of generosity. We're to be a generous people. They were attending the temple together. There was a Christian gathering. There was a breaking of bread in their homes. There was Christian hospitality. They were receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. There was Christian thanksgiving in this group of people. They were praising God. There was Christian singing and worship. And what did that result in? It resulted in having favor with all people. There was a Christian righteousness that led to lives above reproach and good reputation. That's what it looked like. So the, the, these are the colors on the painting board, the, the palette, but it was painting a picture of what it looks like when Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit. They demonstrate that spirit-filledness leads to a community of spiritual devotion. Spiritual devotion. And, and I just want for us to remember what was happening here. This was a community that was formed virtually overnight of 3,000 people. And what were they doing? They were living out in community, in a community of deep spiritual devotion. What could possibly explain that kind of transformation amongst 3,000 people? If you've spent any time in a group of two human beings, call it a marriage, 
You understand how difficult it is to live in this kind of one anothering. Now amplify that to 3,000 people that you are not necessarily, in the same way as marriage, covenanted to belong to. And yet this was precisely what was happening. What explains that? Well, in some sense, we've already said it. We've said spirit-filledness. The Spirit came, day of Pentecost, uh, it was indwelling and falling on new believers, and everything was changing. The Spirit is what defines and makes this a reality. But I wanted to ask another question and get a little deeper into the gospel here and not just say it was the Spirit that was doing this, it was the Spirit that was doing this, but what is the Spirit's job? What does the Spirit always do? The Spirit is always pointing to, always revealing, always glorifying Jesus. Why were people being so devoted? Why were they changed in an instant? It's because of Jesus. The reason that this community was bound together in supernatural devotion is because of the supernatural, life-giving devotion of our Savior, Jesus. That's the reason why they were changed was because of the devotion of Jesus. It was Jesus' desire and devotion that led him to impart his teachings to the disciples. It was Jesus' devotion that led him to create a way for eternal fellowship with you. It was Jesus' devotion unto death that is set as a reminder in the sacrament of communion. It is Jesus' powerful, prayerful devotion. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that God the Father was answering here for these 3,000 people and for billions of Christians in eternity. It's Jesus' devotion to sell his own life, to sell everything that he had and distribute grace to all, for all have need. It's Jesus' devotion that results and necessitates the devotion of his followers. What am I talking about? Make it, make it real for me. I want you to imagine, for some of you it's not imagining, that you were uh, diagnosed with a life-threatening illness and that you had a doctor come alongside of you and uh, prescribe things and, uh, or, uh, or perform surgeries that saved your life. And imagine the, the connection with that doctor. Imagine uh, the devotion that you would have to that doctor and their practice and the thankfulness that you would have for the years of education that that doctor had. I want you to imagine that in a moment you were saved from a life-threatening situation. I want you to imagine even maybe for most of us that teacher that you had that really changed and impacted your life that you still think about. It was their devotion that leads to even some of those thoughts of devotion today. Now expand that into the spiritual salvation that Jesus Christ provides for his people. Imagine the devotion that it took even to die on the cross in order to save you. That's what was happening with these people. They heard the good news of the gospel that there is salvation in Christ and they said, what can I do? What must I do? How must I be changed? And the Spirit comes in and says, you will devote yourself to the teaching and to the prayers and to the fellowship and to the gathering and to communion. You will devote yourself to these things. And there wasn't some reluctance on the God's people at that time. There wasn't, well, if I can get to it, it's a really busy day. It's not, uh, maybe I'll uh, do that in the latter part of my life. It was like, he saved my life. His devotion saved my life. How could I do anything but be devoted to this amazingly devoted Savior? That is the gospel of Jesus' devotion. God's Spirit-filled people are marked by spiritual devotion because of our devoted Savior. But practically speaking, today. So not just way back then. Practically speaking today, how does this shape the way that we live out our faith at City Church? What does it mean for us in this next chapter? 
I'm not, I'm not telling you that today is like a vision casting day where I'm going to tell you how the vision that we've casted is going to work its way into a mission that we've casted that's worked its way into the goals that we've set as a... All that I'm telling you is, is that when I look at this group of people and how they were changed, how I want for City Church to change, how, how I want devotion to be lived out in us, And it means that we are dedicated, that we are insistent, that we are persistent, and that we are unrelenting about a few things. And the first one is the gospel. I want for us to be dedicated and devoted to the gospel. Now, now that may, please do not leave that statement. Go, I assumed you would say that. Of course you would say that. The gospel is more than just the atoning sacrifice of Jesus to save sinners, but it is not less. And we will continue here at City Church to proclaim Jesus' life, death, life, and future coming until we are dead. If you've become apathetic or complacent about the gospel, I want you to know something about City Church. You're in good company. You're, that's a weird thing for a pastor to say, to say isn't it? If you've become uh, apathetic and complacent about the gospel, I want you to know that here at City Church, you're actually in good company. I go through seasons. The people that I love that are a part of this church go through seasons where there is apathy and complacency about the gospel, but the one thing that we must do is remain devoted to it week in and week out in our gatherings, in our discipleship groups, in the meals that we have, in the prayers that we pray, we must be devoted to the gospel. You may have become apathetic or complacent about the gospel, but Jesus was never apathetic or complacent about you. Jesus was perfectly devoted to the redemption of his people. Let us be devoted to that kind of gospel Beloved, let us be devoted to the gospel. Let it be that when you cut City Church open that the blood that flows out of it is the gospel. We are insistent, we are persistent about the gospel, but we are also insistent and persistent about uh, the best source that we have for that, and that is the word. Just as the disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So I'm talking about this collection of 3,000 disciples that was made in an instant at this day of Pentecost. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We have the apostles' teaching. We have Jesus' teaching. It's canonized. It is here in this book. Let us be a devoted people to the Word of God. We cannot live by bread alone. Our very sustenance, the thing that we must have when we wake up in the, wor- in the morning must be every word that proceeds from God's mouth. We at City Church want to elevate the consuming, the study, the sharing, and the dedication that we have to scriptures. We must do that. The life of our church, I believe, I believe with all of my heart, depends on it. When we are beset on all sides, we must run to the word of God knowing that there, there is the source of the true words of the gospel and that is what we must be devoted to. We are devoted as a people to the gospel and to the word, but we are devoted also to the gathering, to the gathering. We see here clearly in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, that God's people have always gathered. It didn't end let's say this, it didn't start with Jesus. God's people gathered for ages. And then Jesus came and he gathered people. And then he sent people out and they gathered people. How do we know that? We can see it here. There is something spiritually significant about the gathering of God's people. It it, it is not directly correlated math. It is exponential. What do I mean by that? I mean that when, uh, when I walk into this room, when I walk into your house and we gather for discipleship group, I don't just bring the one of spirit-filledness in me. Bo doesn't bring the one of spirit-filledness in him. 
Sarah doesn't bring the one of spirit-filledness in her, and we add them together and we get three. Spirit-filledness is exponential. When God's people gather together, there is something spiritually significant about it. There is something uh, just exponential about it. When God's people gather together, I, I believe that if we could put on spiritual glasses to see the power that happens when God's people gather together, I think we would see just bombs going off. We would see power being displayed. When God's people gather together, things change. Hearts change. Do we believe it? Do we believe that gathering together is essential? Look at the scriptures. How else did God's spirit people received the teaching? How did they enjoy the fellowship? How did they take the communion? How did they share the meals? How did they praise God? How did they pray but by gathering in the temple and in homes? How did they do it? They gathered together. We as a people will be devoted to the gathering. We have two primary opportunities to do this at City Church. We have them in Sunday gatherings, and we have them in discipleship groups. We are wanting to see our Sundays become more, not less, welcoming and worshipful and safe. And I want to ask you for your help in doing that. I want to ask you for your devotion in seeing the things that we do as a church in gathering people as being spiritually significant and dedicating yourself to it. I'm apathetic sometimes about gathering together with my discipleship group, but what I need is that devotion, that belief that something is there for me. Men, lead your families to gatherings. Don't go lethargically. Don't go when there's not a game on. Lead your family to gather with God's people. It's significant. We want to see our discipleship groups create deep knownness, space for living out the one another's. We gather, we gather just as God's people did during this time when they were so changed in Sunday gatherings, really throughout the week, it just says that they attended temple. They were, they were going to the temple all the time to do these things, but they were also doing it in homes. The two ways that we're going to do that at City Church are the two that I've already mentioned, but we're going to create and cultivate additional spaces across the body to gather. We have Thursday night prayers. You can jump on Zoom. We, have, we used to have a prayer prior to gathering that was just open to anyone who wanted to come. We're going to gather God's people. We have walkie-talkies. We have picnic lunches. We're going to create spaces for women and for men and for children. How are we going to do those things? Stay tuned. I don't even know. I don't know all of the ways that we're going to do it, but we're going to do it. We're going to gather God's people. Okay? And we're going to worship. We're going to worship. What we get here in Acts chapter 2 is not an exhaustive list, but we do see that communion and praise and prayer and fellowship are what God's people do. There is an instinct in God's spirit-filled people that we gather that we sing, that we commune, and that we are prayerful people. Yes, all of life is worship. If you don't hear anything else that I say, all of life is worship. Christian worship, by the way, looks different in different places in different times. It looks different in different geographies and different cultures. But the things that are ever-present are here mentioned in Acts. So there's a variety of ways to worship God but we're never going to not take communion here. We're, we're never going to not gather here. We're never going to be a non-singing people here. We're going to do those things. We're going to worship. We're going to be devoted to worship. And why? Because we have a devoted Savior. So with that in mind, I have a couple of things that I very quickly, if I can, want to lovingly impress on City Church, okay? These are not necessarily the things that I'm going to like point directly to in the passage. Some of them are. But they're the things that as God, uh, the Spirit, has taken me through this, has uh, taken me through this season as a church, that I want to be in a place where I can call our body to some really good things, okay? I want to be specific in it. Like, well, didn't you just do that? Didn't you just call us to a few? Yes. 
I want to call you to a few specific things. I want, you to, I want to call you to gospel evangelism. I want us to commit ourselves to believing and sharing the gospel of Jesus. If we're going to be a people that is devoted to the gospel, we cannot keep it to ourselves. When we talked about mission in the past, it's included a variety of good and amazing things. But one of the things that I've not seen in myself, one of the things that I've not necessarily seen all the time, just kind of needed throughout the body, is a persistence, a devotion to sharing the gospel with people that don't know it. I want to call you today to gospel evangelism. Why? Because I could ask you, what is it that you're devoted to? I mean, the truth is, is that people are devotion machines. It's like you can barely have a conversation with people about the best hamburger in City Church without getting evangelized, right? I got my best burger. You have your best burger? Let's compete. Let's evangel- I'm going to try to convince you what the best burger in town is. That's what I'm going to do. And, and we do that with everything. It's like uh, uh, exercise routines. I'm a CrossFit person. Like, I'm, not, I'm clearly not a CrossFit person. It's okay to laugh at that. Uh, you know, people have their brands, and they're trying to evangelize them all the time. Uh, yet, I, I bet, I bet that if we looked at um, the Amazon purchase list, I, I, I bet that if we looked at, you know, the, uh, um, the social media account that you have, I'll bet that if we looked at the thing that you devote your times to, the search bars and everything, I think we'd find pretty quickly what it is that you're devoted to. And what I see in God's people is a lot of evangelism, a lot of evangelism for things that may even seem pretty uh, connected in with the gospel, but it's not the heart of the gospel. I see people evangelizing a lot of like ministry philosophies. I've been guilty of that. I've seen people evangelizing a lot of different types of social justice orientation, but I don't see a lot of evangelizing of the gospel what I don't see. Not, not just in our church. I don't see a lot of evangelism happening of the life, death, life, and eternity of glory of Jesus Christ. I don't see a lot of that. Maybe you do. Maybe you've got a better vantage point than I do. I, I pray it is so. I pray it is so. I want to call us to gospel evangelism. I want to call us to Bible study. I want us as a people to be devoted to God's Word in such a way that we could not become too apathetic about God's Word. I've got a confession for you. In seasons and at times, there are times where I just become too lax and too comfortable, just nibbling around the edges of Scripture, and I long to see in myself and in City Church, a deeper devotion to the truth that is contained in the pages of Scripture. I want to see us studying the Bible. I want to call you to study the Bible. If your discipleship group is nibbling around the edges, be, be an activist in your group. Hey, can we study something this week? Maybe you're meeting for really good things. You're meeting for prayer you know, time with people and everything, but somehow the Word of God is just absent. I want you to be devoted to the Word in such a way that your prayer time becomes uh, a reciting of Scripture time. Why? Because you've studied Scripture. You know it. You're, you're intimately involved and connected in with God's Word. I long to see that kind of Bible study here at City Church. And I want to call you to gatherings. I want to call you to gatherings. I I enter into this space with some amount of trepidation because I know that I'm not just uh, talking to a room full of people here, but talking also to people online, talking to people that have never been to this church, literally never been. They came into town, COVID hit, they're looking online, they just, you know, haven't had the chance, haven't had the space to be in one of our gatherings, whether here or in discipleship groups. I want to be bold. I want to be loving. I want to be gracious this morning. I want to let everybody know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no tears of Christianity, but I want to call people back to in-person gatherings on Sunday in discipleship groups. I'm keenly aware that this topic is fraught with all kinds of pitfalls, so I just ask for your trust. I ask for your trust. This is not a political statement. It's not about the ego of having more people in the room. I'm trying to be thoughtful and prayerful and careful. 
and convictional in what I'm asking, what our elder team is going to be asking and clarifying over the coming weeks. We see here, we see here in Acts chapter 2 all of the fruit that comes and is born out of gathering. Hebrews 10 warns us not to neglect the gathering, and it even goes as far to assume that some are prone to, that all, in some sense, are prone to neglect the gathering, and it says, don't do it. Don't neglect the gathering. We are commanded to take communion when we gather in remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice. And so there's a daunting question that I've had just percolating in my heart for some time now. It's a daunting question, and that is, Are we being obedient as a body? Not are we conforming ourselves to some weird political narrative, not are we uh, uh, just searching to go to the lowest common denominator, just are we simply being obedient to what God has called us to? We, We in this church now have been the better part of seven months without taking communion together as one gathered people, and that weighs really heavy on me. It weighs really heavy on me, guys. So I don't mention any of these things. Our elder team is not in the coming weeks going to be leading towards in-person gatherings in ways that are welcoming and that are worshipful and that are safe because we just think that it's a good idea. We do it because we want to be obedient. We want to be devoted to the one who is devoted to us. So I want to lovingly, carefully ask you to consider devoting yourself, your family, to gathering in person. We'll be sending out information in the near future about how we're going to navigate this with RSVPs and masks and communion and Kid City and all of this sort of stuff. I know that it arises in you lots of different questions, but I can't not do it. I can't, our elder team cannot not confront this issue. It's so important. It'll be impossible to satisfy every need. There are so many different circumstances. I know you have a great aunt that, you know, practically raised you, and she's, you know, uh, has uh, medical... I get it. There are a lot... We want to actually discuss those things. We, we don't want it just to be like a closed-door issue. I want to discuss these things. There are legitimate issues. Let's, let's do that as a family. Let's do that as a united community. That's really what I'm on about this morning. So we will need your grace and your trust and just ask you that you would contact us. So as we close, why why is it that we're discussing these fundamental issues, these fundamental principles for Christian life today? First, it's because they asserted themselves to us in the Word today. Our church, if you've not been around for very long, we pick books of the Bible and we just preach through them. And we trust that God is going to confront in His timing with his words, the things that we need. And so, I mean, it just it asserted itself. Secondly, it's because I think that these things are the precise things that we need to grow amidst these concerning times that I mentioned earlier. And what if instead of focusing our attention on all the things that are out there, we, during this election season, during this pandemic, focused about the things that are happening here? not out there. What if we devoted ourselves here? The question that I would imagine would arise in some of your hearts after reading through this passage and preaching it this way is what about mission? What about justice? Christians all across the country are asking these questions and they're good questions. I want to close in this on a very hopeful note that hopefully takes us all in so that we may understand the mission and justice that God brings about in his people. Look with me in verse 47. If you've lost your, go back there. What was the result of all of this devotion? Verse 47, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is not an anti-mission sermon. It's not. This is not an anti-justice. Quite the opposite. What happens when God's spirit-filled people are devoted spiritually? People come to know Jesus. People come to know Jesus when God's people are acting like God's people, when they are changed from the inside out, when it shapes our community, the Lord adds 
to their number day by day, those who are being saved. And this is not some just meaningless salvation. This is an eternal salvation. Because no one can pluck anyone out of God's hand. He is saving them eternally. And how is God doing it? In this 3,000, now we see plus 3,000 people here at the end of Pentecost. How is God doing it? God's spirit-filled people were living spiritually devoted lives. Jesus gives us a new command in John 13. He says, love one another as I have loved you. And then he goes on to say this, by, all, uh, by this, all people, by the love that you have for one another, all people will know that you're my disciples. That's what Jesus says. You, you want to know the most missional things that you can do, the, the things that will bring about the most amount of mission, the most amount of evangelism, the most number of people coming in day by day into his kingdom? by being this kind of devoted. It, 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 it kind of doesn't, it doesn't always gel up with the ways that we think about how God makes believers. If we're a family, if we're a family acting like this kind of family, people will see it and they'll know whose disciples we are. They will know who Jesus is by the love that we have for one another. So I just want to end there and pray for us as we kind of uh, get back to a place where, uh, as, a, as a church, we kind of know where we're going and everything, I want for us to know what the end goal is there, and it's that we are uh, spirit-filled people that are living lives of spiritual devotion, that are doing that because of the devoted king that we have, and that we're seeing people, we're doing it because we want to see people come in. So bow with me. God and Father, there are so many things in this very dense passage. Uh, Father, you know that um, even as long as we've gone this morning, that there are so many additional things that we could have talked about. There are little points uh, um, of reference in this. There there are so many things that uh, people are doing that we could spend weeks on. We could spend months on plumbing the depths of. And so, Lord, we just offer uh, this time of worship up to you, asking that you would create this kind of devotion in us. Lord, not so that we look more spiritual or so that we can earn our salvation. Father, we know that that can't possibly be the truth. Lord, we ask you that you would produce this level of devotion in us because we knew, we know that uh, that's the precise kind of devotion that Jesus had for us. So change us, Father. Change city church, Father. Change our culture, our city, our nation, the world. Change us, Lord, that we might be a kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we pray these things in the mighty name.